started, thank you so much for coming out tonight. If you will, I've asked a few guys if they would take some of the stairs. We're going to need as much help for those who are going to, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, those who are willing to come join them on the steps. We've got a lot of folks tonight, and just try to do your best at finding a seat. We're so glad that you are here this evening. Uh, I've met a number of new folks tonight. It's always good. To, we, we typically have a number of new folks, but um, if this is your first time, welcome. My name is Justin Hare. I'm one of the clergy at St. Philip's Church. <clears throat> Normally, I'm joined by Brian McGreevy, but he is, as I said last, or last time we met two weeks ago, he's taken the whole month of August off for vacation, and he's been living it up in Europe. But he comes back. He'll be back for the next one. So tonight, I'm super excited. We have a, my friend Jolene Park, who's been uh, so kind to join us. A little bit on her coming up in a second. But you'll see these sheets of paper scattered around the room, hopefully. That's going to be really important for tonight. They're around the bar. They're on tables, that sort of thing. Pass them around. Because what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a topic. And then as soon as that, uh, we'll have about 30 minutes of Q&A. And you can submit any question related to what we're talking about or not related to it by just submitting, uh, by scanning that top QR code and then submitting that there. Like the questions that you see on there. And who, where's Lizzie? Lizzie's going to be, there she is. She's got the mic. Lizzie's going to be uh, posing those questions to us after we talk a little bit. I want to give a few announcements. These are really important. If you want to join our email list for Theology on Tap, you'll see that QR code on the bottom left. That's the best way to stay in touch with, we do this every other Tuesday. So uh, that's the best way to stay in the know on all things Theology on Tap. A couple of other things that I want to draw your attention to. This Sunday from 4 to 6, you know, we have a lot of folks who go to other churches. That's great. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to go to St. Philip's to come to Theology on Tap. We're just glad that you're here. If you're interested in knowing more about what we have going on in the life of St. Phillips, we have a young adult, basically uh, it's a social hour, and you can hear a little bit of what's going on in the life this fall. I'm really excited about one of the classes I'm going to be teaching this semester on connecting our faith and our work. If that interests you at all, I would really encourage you to join me Sunday mornings coming up. But come to this event called Goodbye Summer. It's a young adult uh, kind of open house to see what we're doing this fall at St. Phillips. Also, we've started a fellowship group, so if you just can't get enough of Theology on Tap and seeing folks, this is on the off weeks of Theology on Tap. It's called Holy City Life, and it's basically a lot of the folks who come to Theology on Tap, they meet and they do uh, pickleball, I think it's the next thing that they're doing, but uh, we've got game nights, other stuff going on as well, so join that group me if you're interested in it. One last thing I'm going to and then we're going to get down to our topic. We're doing a conference. It's way out in January, but it's almost full already. It's called Mere Anglicanism, but you don't have to be Anglican, and don't worry about that. It's all about how do we respond as Christians to a lot of the quote-unquote new morality that we're seeing in the world today. We have some unbelievable speakers, some world-class scholars, uh, folks who do this sort of thing all over the world, Oxford, you know, brilliant folks. If you want to go to that, you can help us in volunteering, and we can get you in comped. So, please, uh, that's mere Anglicanism. That's the second to last weekend of January, but unfortunately, the uh, it's almost sold out. We're, we're more than halfway there. We've got about 200 more spots available, so don't delay. That's not on here, but it's a conference called Mere Anglicanism. Talk to me afterwards if you're interested in it. 
All right, tonight, I'm super excited because Jolene and I, we actually just spent some time in Israel at the beginning of June, got to know one another, and of course, I had no idea what she did, and she's telling me a bit of her story, which we're going to get into our stories a bit tonight, but we realized, holy cow, there's a lot of similar interests that we have, particularly when it comes to this issue of alcohol. She um, has a background, she's a, a functional nutritionist and a health coach, and she's got quite a story when it comes to this topic of alcohol. Um, she is, has a YouTube, or not a YouTube video, it's a TED Talk, over 350,000 views on this topic of gray area drinking. We're going to talk about gray area drinking a little bit tonight. Um, I am not an expert in physiology or the nervous system, but you are. And I uh, am an expert in the Bible and what the Bible kind of says or doesn't say about alcohol. So we thought we'd have a really fun conversation kind of combining those two things. And there's no way we're going to get through everything probably we want to say because we want to leave plenty of time for questions at the end. But, um, you know, we could start in a number of places. But I think maybe what would be fun is uh, let's, let's do this. In talking about what does the Bible say, if anything, about alcohol? Um, I mean, I have a lot of things to say. Would, would there be anything that comes to your mind there? Do you want me to start first? Or? I think you, you okay. run with that. I'll do, all right. I'll do the Feel free to chime in at any point. All right. So the first thing I think we want to look at when it comes to alcohol and, and beer, wine, that sort of thing. Did I just sound weird? Okay. Um, God created, it's a unique thing about Christianity is in the beginning when God created, it said he created everything good. There wasn't. He didn't create anything that was evil, right? And so his creation was, was good. And in fact, he created man to cultivate the, the created world and to, to draw out its potential inside of it, right? So I think that's where we want to start when we look at just any kind of created thing, and alcohol being one of those. But what uh, the enemy, Satan, does throughout Scripture is that he is going to twist good things for evil purposes. That's all, he's, he's like a, a leech. He's always taking what is good of God's creation and twisting it. Um, but we would want to say, first of all, it's a alcohol, beer, wine. It's a good gift, right? But it can be a terrible master. Now, where do I get some of that, right? So you can be, uh, there are a number of scriptures that get to all of this. Um, Proverbs is a huge place that has a lot of warnings about drunkenness. And I think we need to say a word about just alcohol, but then why you're drinking, how you're drinking. I love what you've called it, gray area drinking, because there's a lot of gray in some of this. Wisdom itself a, is, is not exactly black and white. It's contextual, right? So why you're drinking is going to be a really important thing. To what degree you're drinking is also going to be another big factor in that. Um, but so there's, while it's a good gift, there are plenty of warnings about drunkenness and, and just taking alcohol and going beyond what it was created to be. Also, I think we need to talk about how alcohol in Jesus' day was far more diluted than I think in our American, like so much of what we're talking about, we, we kind of have to take our American 21st century goggles off to yeah. be able to connect a little bit. Um, and in Jesus' day, you know, does anybody know his first miracle that he did? Yeah, his first, and that actually says something really important. Jesus uh, was at a wedding feast. This is, and they would have week-long celebrations. And he turned water when they when they ran out. I mean, it was really embarrassing to to run out. I mean, you think about faux pas and like the wedding culture today. This would have been a the whole village was invited typically, 
There's 180 gallons of water that he turned into wine. And okay. we actually we actually saw those vats of of wine in. We went Cana, to Cana, like we were was, in, like two really months cool. ago. It was I mean, wild. They're not wine bottles. Like you can't move them. They're huge. That they dug up, you know, from the archaeology, and it's. And I had no idea it was that. Big. I didn't either. And then to start just envisioning, like, what did this party look like? Like, was it just a fraternity week long? And I'd yeah, just you, a like, bash, what do you think yeah. this was like? But yeah, we don't think it was right. Right. I, yeah, and this is a very different cultural thing. And some cultures today across the world still kind of have this, where drinking is not to get drunk. And in fact, there are many, uh, like I, I think Italy and other places, like by and large, the cultural differences is not to just get wasted, but actually there's a whole different vibe to it. And that was, um, first of all, again, it's diluted wine. It's sprouted out over the course of a week. They're not getting sloshed, basically. They're know? not I mean, day drinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. um, and yet, so like one of the things is wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy and abundance, and, and it's a great thing, but Jesus... We have, to, we have to say that Jesus never sinned, right? So he was not drunk while he was doing this. I think that's an important thing um, to notice. So if you have this good creation, it can go off the rails. But Jesus starts his first miracle with turning water into wine. And there's all sorts of warnings, not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Almost every letter of the New Testament warns against drunkenness, right? One of the things that, uh, I mean, you compare in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh, drunkenness is in that list. There's other places as well. Um, I think probably the most helpful place in the New Testament when it comes to, you know, how do we as Christians relate to the issue of alcohol is in 1 Corinthians, right? So 1 Corinthians, I'll, I'll set it here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And there's, there's some really great wisdom with that. In, in context, what they were talking about was, um, you know, people who felt like they didn't want to, or that they shouldn't eat certain foods or follow certain days or traditions. But um, Paul was saying, no, 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 it's all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. So first of all, the question we should ask is, is it lawful if we're trying to decide, is, this, is my relationship with alcohol healthy? Well, if it's breaking the law, no, it's not. That's the first place to start. Secondly, is it helpful? And you're going to have a lot to say in a second about we might not actually think alcohol is as helpful as, as many people think. Third thing is, is it enslaving? And there's going to be a lot that we're going to pick up on. This isn't just alcohol, but anything, food, anything can become a master, right? But I think alcohol, is in, in particular, has enslaving tendencies to it. That's why there's so many warnings. So again, you see the grayness in some of this? It's, it's not black and white. So often we can go, alcohol, bad. Or alcohol, so good. Look, Jesus turned it into wine, right? It's great. No, there, there's, it's a good thing, but it so easily can become a terrible master. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, Jolene, tell us, what, I think just with that backdrop, what is gray area drinking? Tell us a little bit about your story, and we can start to chime in more, too, in, in all this. But. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. I, I mean, I love seeing the crowd here. I'm so thrilled um, that you all are drawn to this topic. I'm curious, how, how many have heard the term gray or drinking or sober curious? Sober curious? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, okay. Okay. 
And then how many have this, you've never heard this term before, gray area drinking? So most of you. Okay, all right. I heard it two months ago. So. <laughs> so I identify as a former gray area drinker. I quit drinking um, eight and a half years ago. And as a nutritionist who was working in corporate wellness, health coach, I love wellness, I love physiology, um, you know, kind of all the things, there just got to be this um, incongruence with there was nothing about my drinking. I'd go out with my girlfriends, happy hour, girls' night out, you know, the thing. There was nothing that happened externally that it was like, oh, Jolie needs to quit drinking. But internally, there was that, I'd wake up at three in the morning and be like, I didn't want to drink that much again. I was just going to go have a glass of wine, ah, I'll have another glass, I'll have another glass. It was getting very easy to do that on a really frequent basis. And then even just at home, like I'll pop open the bottle of wine, have a glass, and I just polish off the bottle. Um, and so as the years went on, it was just becoming a really frequent, easy pattern. And that's my story. That's it. There's nothing um, dark beyond that. There's no kind of um, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, my drinking memoir would be very boring. Um, and I, what's shocking, though, is when I started speaking about that from kind of the wellness perspective, how many um, professional women that I was already working around and, and um, you know, they knew of my work came forward and said, that's how I drink. Your story is my story. Like, I function. Like, nothing bad has happened. But there's this internal kind of, I know I'm drinking too much, but we didn't, we're not talking about it. I had no idea when I was drinking, like every, you know, all my friends around me, that it never even occurred to me that anybody else would have been silently saying, I'm drinking. Like, I don't want to keep drinking like this. It never occurred to me. And then I quit drinking and started talking about it. And... It was so shocking how many people said, that's me. So I actually didn't make up the term gray area drinking. As a nutritionist, um, I started digging in the research. And in 2010, when um, they were redoing the American Dietary Guidelines, as they do every decade or so, uh, there was a team of researchers uh, in, in that time period. And they were saying, look, if, if we're advising people how to eat and drink, um, what to eat and drink for optimal health and disease prevention, we can't ignore alcohol. And there's this gray area. And so if you Google it, gray area drinking, there's these studies um, from the nutritional side of things. And they said, we're not talking about people who, you know, it's like an end stage, they need medical treatment to stop drinking because they're having a seizure. We're also not talking about people who drink every now and again, like a couple times throughout the year. We're talking about um, everybody in between, which is how a lot of people drink, and we've just been turning a blind eye to it and not talking about it, and we can't ignore it if we talk about disease prevention and um, optimal health. So from a nutritionist health perspective, I was like, oh, that's, that's it. I was in the gray area. Like, I didn't go to treatment. I didn't go to a 12-step meeting. I just kind of quit quietly. I was like, this is just incongruent with what I'm teaching, what I love. To me, I saw it as kind of a biohack of quitting, and it was a problem. I mean, drinking a bottle of wine uh, you know, on a really frequent occasion is absolutely a problem. It's, it's way over anything that's recommended. And now, since I quit, I quit in 2014. 2018, um, the Lancet has come out saying there is no safe or healthy recommended intake of alcohol, zero. So I'm not a prohibitionist. This isn't a dare, you know, <laughs> I mean, saying, you know, don't drink. 
But again, from the health perspective, from just kind of the brain chemistry, which I talked about in my TED Talk standpoint, um, anything that we, as far as like cancers or seven cancers directly connected with alcoholic, we started counting all of this research from the health perspective. And what I found in my work, the more I started talking about my story of like, I don't have a crash and burn story, but how I was drinking was a problem for me, and that's why I chose to quit. Um, and just, you know, the health connections with it, again, how many people are, are really resonating with that, and especially women. They found that men's drinking has kind of held steady over the years, but there's certainly been something that's happened with women in the last 15 to 20 years, um, that for the first time in history, there's been a significant uptick in drinking, and I was in, I was swept up in that. Um, women in their you know, 30s and 40s, they're talking about this whole kind of mommy culture, uh, where drinking, there's a real uptick with, yeah. it's part of kind of the playgroup piece. Dude, we that see it. yeah, all the time. The, the women, you know, in business, I mean, my clients, their, um, their career resumes, resumes are very impressive. Their life resumes are very impressive. They, they called me to, you know, start a coaching uh, package with me, and many of them say, I function really well, like trying to justify them. I'm like, I know you do. <laughs> this is who I work with. Like, you don't want to get to a point where you don't function well. But there, it's this gray area where they don't need medical treatment. They're not drinking every now and again. But especially, again, not my opinion, not a moral thing, not a legalistic thing, just from a, what we know about the body, the nervous system, it's too much. And it doesn't take much to be too much. So in the last decade, there's really been this whole movement now. This, um, some will call it sober curiosity, uh, the gray area. And really, the gray area is it's if people are drinking, um, some will define themselves self-defined as a moderate drinker, a social drinker, um, a problem drinker, an addicted drinker, an alcoholic. It's all under that umbrella. It's gray because there's no safe or recommended intake. That doesn't mean nobody should drink. Um, but my, what I like to give voice to and the reason I do my work is not to tell people to stop drinking, but for those who are drinking and having a silent internal back and forth, fretting, worrying, regretting um, silently, there's a whole global conversation going on. There's a whole change of, of paradigm that's working physiologically with um, that's all my work as opposed to um, traditionally it was more kind of psychologically of it's um, a character defect or you got to get more control of your self-will and mentally uh, shoulder through and there's really pieces with the physiology with the nervous system um, all those components that that I work with and, and a lot of people resonate with if, and what I'll say too is, you know, many of you in the room may be like, it's just, nope, that's, um, you know, I'm not a big drinker. But I will say to you, somebody in your life is a gray area drinker. It's so common. It's not healthy, but it's very common. So someone in your inner circle, close friends, family, colleagues, um, right now, are, will wake up potentially tomorrow morning after they woke up at 3 this morning, say, you know, struggling, but they're not talking to you about it. One of the things I forgot to mention at the outset is obviously this is a really sensitive topic, right? And uh, I would imagine all of us come to the issue of alcohol in many different ways. I wouldn't be doing what I normally do here with Brian uh, as often if, if we thought it was clearly an evil that we had to absolutely remove ourselves from. 
you know, one of the accusations laid against Jesus was that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, and he was himself called a glutton and a drunkard, even though he was never drunk. And one of the things I hope you realize in some of this, if at any point tonight you're feeling the whole point of this is not to guilt or shame anybody, and in fact Jesus welcomes those who are broken, like that's the whole point he came, was he felt he came for the those who weren't healthy, right? And so if we feel at any point tonight, this is just not, uh, if you're feeling pricked on the inside, like talk to somebody about it, talk to us. Um, but that's the whole reason Jesus came actually, was to, to restore us to flourishing. And that's so much of what we're talking about. My story, you know, interestingly, um, I grew up despising alcohol. I didn't drink till I was 22. And I had alcohol issues in the family that I just hated it, and I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, and it was, uh, ended up dating, getting married, and became all of a sudden open to alcohol. It wasn't terrible. And I probably swung more from the, the end of the side where it's only going to end up bad all the time to maybe, the, uh, it's a fluid thing, right? Like, I, and now I'm in a place where, if anything, I'm probably swinging back to like, man, this thing can be very ensnaring, and I just want to be careful with it. Not because God is a all about putting his children in a straitjacket and not having fun. The opposite of that. It's, you know, having children and seeing the danger, right? If you ever see children in danger, you're like, well, I want to protect my beloved. And I think that's the way when we approach any kind of prohibition or uh, warning in the Bible, think of it as a loving father who's like, I don't want to see my children ruined. And so I, I just want to say that a little bit, but I'd love for you to speak into, you mentioned like the health and the physiological um, effects of drinking, and you're like, actually the way, the gray area drinking, which man, the way you describe that, that's so many people in the United States today. There's so many young people that are probably in that category. What are some of the effects physiologically that just, you're saying just a little bit can actually produce a lot of harmful stuff? Right, right. And I want to emphasize also to underscore what you said. I really don't judge. This This really is not a moral thing, a legalistic thing for me. It really is the physiological. I love physiology. I always have. I certified in nutrition in 1999. So um, it's the love of physiology. It's not, again, I, I just want to, because I know it can just be a little tender. And, and that's not what we're here. Yeah, yeah, not at all. So your question about the physiology of what yeah, the impact the, or? Just how um, I, I think for most people, at least I, I would be curious about just, um, you, you were, I think you alluded to it, a little bit of alcohol can have a lot of physiological ramifications that I think most people associate, yeah, if I get wasted and I've got a hangover, I'm throwing up the next day, that's pretty clear. But what are some of the other, uh, maybe on just the less like, um, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like a, a smaller scale of that, basically. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't take much. So one five ounce glass of wine um, for women, uh, you know, every day, set seven drinks a week, once you go, I mean, seven drinks, that is moderate drinking. Once you go to that eighth drink, it's heavy, risky drinking. So it just, I mean, I think sometimes we think we have to be like in this bad wine. For men, it's double. So two, two glasses of wine, 14, 14 drinks a week or more for men, seven or more drinks a week for women gets into that risky area. If you're, you know, the seven or 14, that's, it's great. It's, and, and people will define it differently. Medically, you know, it's defined as, 
alcohol use disorder, mild, moderate, severe. So what that you know what that does? Um, there's seven cancers connected with it. I work a lot with the brain. Um, people talk anxiety. That's part of my story. It's what drew me. To, I wasn't. I didn't drink early either, as in high school or college. But after a, a bad breakup in my late twenties, I was just devastated, and um, it was like well, people like have a drink when they're upset. So I had a glass of wine and immediately kind of. I wasn't. I mean, I had drinks before, but I was like, oh, I, this just shut off my brain. It just shut off that pain. I. I this felt good, and so I was like, what am I doing with sugar? Like alcohol. Um, and so I, a lot of people will, you know, the anxiety, but what happens then with that is um, it drops GABA, the anti-anxiety natural neurochemical in the brain, even lower. And then we just want more alcohol. So it becomes a vicious cycle with brain chemicals, uh, blood sugar, a lot of just the hangover, the queasy headache, you know, the next morning is low blood sugar, uh, which just sets up a whole host of things for sleep, for weight, uh, for hormone health, for both men and women. So it's, I mean, you kind of pick, pick yeah. a, a system in the body yeah. and it starts to, to wreak havoc. Yeah, which is just more than I ever, I don't know, where I missed that along the way, I did, but, but it's informant, informative to, to realize that. And one of the things that absolutely stunned me when we were talking uh, over by the pool in Israel, we were like, um, <laughs> which I never get to say before, but we were just chatting, it's like, holy cow, it seems like everything that you talk about, we talk about in terms of like, how do you find fullness of life? Like, how do you help people who are like, all right, I don't like the way I am relating to alcohol. What can I do about it? Do you want to share a little bit of like some of what you talk about um, and coach people in? Yeah, so I, I work, again, all with the physiology. I work um, with my NOURISH acronym, which stands for noticing nature, observing your breath, uniting with others, which this would be right now being face-to-face -face with other human beings, not the screen, um, replenishing with food, which is all the nutrition piece, initiating movement, sitting in stillness, and harnessing creativity. And so when I look at different studies and whatever people are talking about, if they're talking about you know hormone imbalance or anxiety, or that there's universal threads that all come back to nature, breath, food, movement, community. And, and so coming back to the basics, coming back to those foundational pieces, because it's like, what are we trying to consume? What are we trying to fill? Something's depleted, something's deficient in some of those areas, physiologically, with the, the neurochemicals, emotionally, with the sense of belonging, safety, just feeling um, safe, um, spiritually, the, the spiritual fill. And so trying to drink that, basically down and calm that anxiety, that and escape, essentially shut our mind off, um, or that that dysregulated feeling. You know, when when we don't feel good in the body, it doesn't feel good. And so alcohol initially it works. I mean, the first ten minutes it feels good. So w w the body knows. The body is very smart. We're reaching for for something, but I work with um, people to find out. Let's figure out what that something really is. Like, where is that depletion? Um, and it can be in the different areas. It can be with community, with connection. Um, it can be food, but it doesn't always have to be nutrition and nutrients. It can be movement. So I work with that comprehensive, uh, truly kind of, I, I, it's the fluid, being, working with the body, the mind, and the spirit. Yeah, which I love because, I mean, the scriptures are very pro-body, right? And I think that's one of the things that, um, what I love about the nourish 
uh, acronym is is it really does con it's all about connecting to the way God to, to others right but also to what God actually intends for flourishing to look like like so it's not escaping your body but becoming more aware of what actually is going on in your body I love what you shared um, I guess it was the other day but um, about how uh, you know our bodies are it's a wonderful thing to be in in this moment in time in our bodies and aware of what's happening that's actually a really good thing i forgot how you said it but uh, well yeah i mean one of one of the ways i put it a little more blunt yeah is um you know if there's ever a time in history to be sober-minded and not be all not voluntarily alter your chemistry now is that time um i just feel that very strongly i i want to be conscious and sober-minded. There's so much going on in the world. There's yeah. so much, it's such strange times. Um, I don't want to be altered. I, I, I want to be fully here. And when I'm drunk, I'm, yeah. I'm not. There's and a, I, yeah. yeah, a counseling term called fragmentation. That is very, if you've ever been around counseling or whatever, like our world is so fragmented, like with one another internally, and Jesus wants to have us experience the opposite of fragmentation, wholeness, health, healing. That's what he came to. Um, and I love how in both of our experiences and in our different perspectives and giftings, we've seen a lot of these same things, a lot of what we talk about at Theology on Tap, reinforcing um, eventually the, the same kind of end goal, right, and a lot of the same truths, which to me show... There's a lot of God's truth in the world, and it's important to be aware, not only of just the scriptures, but also what we can learn from science and things like that. Well, and I think we all know that. We have that innate knowing. And I just also have a, I feel so much that we've gotten so disconnected from our origins. Yeah. Some of it's spiritual, but it's also physical, it's also emotional. I remember I said to you, and Israel also. I love, I love the medieval times. I love um, you know, the Tudors and reading the books and all the movies. And, and I, I'm intrigued by those women um, in those times. And again, they had, it's like Jesus' time. They had wine, they, but they also had really bad sanitation. It was their hydration. Right, yeah. like Don't was, drink the water. The, the, the alcohol percentage was very low. It was what they were, you know, for hydrating. So, of course, they drank wine, but it was different. The women, you know, then didn't sit around like, our women today, or how women are drinking. And, and I, I, for some reason, I just had this sense that if some of these medieval women, I, like I had so much, they were so fierce spiritually, they were so strong politically, um, that if they could come here and time travel, they would rub their temples and be like, ladies, what are you doing? What happened? Like, what? And just kind of this escape. And, and losing our, I, I'm just so big on tradition and the origins, like really the origins of what our physiology needs and, and our spiritual origins. It was so great to go to Israel and see those, that the real origins of the Holy Land, my you know, spiritual Judeo-Christian origins, and, and even you know, emotionally, like what, what are we really needing? What's that nourishment? And so that's what I love, it's what I'm passionate about, and, and that's where it's not a shaming thing. I mean, I'm, I'm an open book. Please, you know, throw your questions yeah. on this. Um, but uh, yeah, I think there's just you know things to think about with what we're anesthetizing or escaping potentially with alcohol. Well, Julian, thank you. This we're just scratching the surface. We're going to have 
plenty of time now. I'd love to hear how we're doing on questions. Uh, Lizzie, can you speak into that? Do we? I have a feeling a lot of the stuff we didn't get to say mm -hmm. will probably come up in the questions. Yeah. So. Okay. All right, first one is, do you think women drink more due to social inequities, forcing women to take on more childcare, household duties, labor, etc.? I do. Yeah, I think um, times are, you know, it's just a different time of the, the responsibilities, the expectations for women, um, different than other times. You know, there, there were villages, there were communities, it takes a village, and, and women are very isolated and often um, drinking, there's an uptick for women after, you know, having kids, but, um, but also the pressure early on of, of school and performing and you and Brian talk about this all the time and you know the career and just that whole trajectory and the, the pressure that, that women hold um, men too it's, it's you know but for, for all of us it's just a, a different um, holding that then you know with the pressure valve of where does that where's the relief where's the reward and people will, my clients will say that like wine at the end of the day it's, it's my reward it's how I shut my brain off yeah, I, I would say too, like in the solution is taking ownership of your own path and saying this is what I want to be true for me, right? So regardless of what, you know, whether it's, I, I have no idea how to speak in that, that actual question, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I do know that the moment that you actually decide I really want to, to live differently, that's probably the best thing you can do. It's a good question. What, what next? Mm -hmm. How can you best balance drinking slash being social with friends with faith? Yeah, how can you balance, say that again, the first part? Um, how can you balance drinking slash being social with friends with faith? Yeah, there's the question we were wondering. All right, how far is too far, Jolene? You know, that's the, how do we, how do we balance that? And, um, you know, one of the things I was trying to say was, like, if it's not illegal, you have to decide, it's a matter of your own Christian liberty, right? So it falls in that category. I think the, one of the things I didn't say, but I want to, is in Romans 14, it talks about how we're to relate to one another, uh, those who have different convictions on matters like that, that really we're at liberty to decide in our own conscience, right? And it says not to pass judgment on those who are taking, um, as a matter of conscience, a different perspective than you. For, especially when it's not against the biblical law or the law of the land, right? And so um, I think that's the first thing I would want to say is, uh, and, and it goes on to say, not to put a stumbling block in the way of those who, you know, if, it's, if you really struggled with being temptation and alcohol, it would be uh, probably unhelpful and it would certainly be unloving if I didn't even ask, hey, would it be helpful if I you know, did not drink in front of you, right? And so that's one of the reasons why we try to create other things outside of theology on tap is to, to really make sure that there's places where you don't have to drink to actually enjoy fellowship. Because I think the kind of air we all breathe is to have fun together must involve alcohol, and it really doesn't. Um, so to answer that question in more specificity, I guess, uh, you have to be aware of your own conscience. What is... Uh, what am I wanting to do? And, and having that informed by not only the Bible, but other Christian brothers and sisters, having Christian community, being willing to like speak into your life. I, I have found that's the most 
uh, helpful part of striking a good balance is my heart is quick to deceive itself. That's one of the things the Bible says. And so actually it's those who know me best who've really helped me say, you know, I think actually the way you're interacting with alcohol, the way you're doing this, is probably a little too much. It's not helpful. And, and not getting defensive, not trying to justify, but just receiving that. So you need other people. You need community who are after those same goals, right? So again, it's gray in all of this. There's Wisdom is, is usually almost always gray. You need to have um, a clear conviction of, okay, if this is good, but I want to have a healthy relationship to it, uh, and I know I don't want to become enslaved to this, I need people around me who know me well enough to be able to call me out if my actions and behaviors are beginning to go against my own convictions. Does that make sense? Maybe. <laughs> what I, would you add to that? I, the thing I want to add to that is often um, most of us feel uncomfortable going up to somebody and saying, like, I think you're drinking too much. The presumption, that when it really comes down to it, my experience has been, people feel uncomfortable with that. Um, I've also found that, you know, clients will say, I, I wish someone would have said, you're drinking too much. Yeah. So um, don't be afraid to, you know, to say that, because I think we feel uncomfortable, but um, people do, and the other thing that happens with gray area drinkers too, is people around them will say, oh, you're just worrying too much, like, you, you know, you're just overthinking this, it's not like you're an alcoholic or anything, so that can be really confusing also um, to gray area drinkers. Yeah. If you're comparing to other folks too as your basis of what There's is healthy. There's always going to be someone who's worse. Right, yeah. Um, so yeah, going back, I think like you have to be able to, I think inviting people to speak into your life almost always goes better. Uh, now there's been times when I've been really grateful that I didn't invite somebody and they still spoke the hard truth to me and that sometimes received, was received well and sometimes not. But Proverbs also said, if you want wisdom, go read the book of Proverbs. You can read a chapter once a day and it covers the whole month. And I would say that's probably the most helpful thing you can do, is just go deep in the book of Proverbs. Um, but it says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. So if you actually care about somebody enough, instead of being silent and passive, you're not gonna be judgmental, right? But you'll, you'll have the courage in love to be able to try to name a hard truth. That's a faithful friend right there. That's probably, we could probably say more, but that's a good place to stop. What, what else? Um, how do you approach a family member or friend in a loving way who has an unhealthy relationship with alcohol? Yeah. So how do you actually do that if it's not being invited? Yeah. Particularly, and boy, is this hard with those that you're closest to. It can be devastating. Um, you want to? I can start with that. Um, in my own experience, it's hard, and I just want to give full, you know, a full-throated like that is. It's not an easy thing, right? I think more often than not, beginning those kinds of questions or those kinds of conversations by not accusing, having good body language, showing that you love them, right? Um, asking questions to start with. Tell me about this without trying to ask leading questions, but really trying to, when in doubt, ask questions to learn the heart of other people. Um, what are their hopes? What are their dreams? And hopefully something regarding, you know, um, you know, what do you think about alcohol? Like, is that, and if it's quick to get defensive at that point, it's shutting down, maybe hold off for a little bit. Like, the, uh, probably a good analogy would be not like a fire hydrant, 
but like dropping in little bits here and there over time is probably going to be received far better than if you just show up guns blazing and coming at them, right? That's the recipe for disaster. So I think it's showing, building the trust long enough to be able to actually then lean in, ask some questions, and perhaps even feel comfortable enough to uh, bring the subject of alcohol just up in general. And say, Tell me what you think about this. What would you add? Yeah, I would piggyback on that of dropping things. Um, there Again, there's such a global movement right now around this alcohol-free, sober, curious, gray area drinking. And so what I suggest to people is take yourself out of it a bit. I mean, it's for anybody. Um, we, we don't listen to uh, friends and family on, you know, help, like even my sister won't listen to me about nutrition. <laughs> and that, that's, just, that's just friends and family. Um, and so, but there's enough out there, it's called Quit Lit. So Quit Literature, there, there's quite a few um, books out there and I'll just drop some specifics for you guys. There's a book called um, This Naked Mind that uh, a lot of people really resonate with. She's a friend of mine in Colorado. Uh, it's, it's gotten, you know, a lot of people read that book. My TED Talk, I've also done, and I'll plug myself, I've also done a podcast, um, Editing Our Drinking and Our Lives. But um, if it, do any of you know um, Andrew Huberman? Have you heard of his podcast? Andrew Huberman is a neuroscientist out of Stanford. If you love health and love physiology, he just goes to town. And he did a, a episode maybe a year ago on alcohol, and it really went off like wildfire, just you know, on the physiology. And so I encourage people, just like you know, if you read a good book, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm reading this good book. Everyone's like, what book is it? It's like, I just heard this good podcast. And so then it's taking you as yeah. kind of the sister or the aunt or whatever out of the mix. And you're just, it's like, listen to this podcast. Yeah. Check out this book. Check out this TED Talk. Um, and then people can just let that kind that's of percolate. a less threatening way of uh, getting to the topic. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. What yeah. was the name of that again? Uh, Andrew Huberman. Okay. And if you just Google his name and alcohol, it's an excellent podcast. And he goes into the physiology. Your, your question of like, what does it do with the body? Yeah. It's two hours of the neuroscience. Oh, wow. So there's tons of podcasts, tons of books, TED Talks. I would just drop, you know, if you read or listen to something that you really like and you're concerned about somebody, just be like, oh my gosh, it just, it's not about them but you just heard something that you really enjoy and you're just talking about it like you just read a good book. Yeah, that's really good. I like that. Next. Mm -hmm. um, what is your view... Oh, wait. Okay. Can you speak about how you navigated the transition socially from drinking to not? How did you communicate your decision to change without judgment? Yeah, this is the, this is the number one question working with clients. And the truth is, my experience working with clients full-time for seven years, if over and over, if we don't spotlight not drinking, nobody else really spotlights it. And it's the number one thing that we anticipate and worry about and fear, how am I gonna go into a room and not drink? Most people don't notice. Most people are thinking about their own drinking, the next order the drink they're gonna order, what's going on, their own thing. Nobody, I've been in so many situations and people just don't even realize that I'm not drinking alcohol. Um, so that's the first thing and it's, uh, it's a little blind faith because you listen, you're like, yeah, 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 I try it. Like, just try it. Like, not even like an alcohol, it's just go into a social situation, don't drink alcohol and see who asks you why you aren't drinking. Now, 
given if I mean if you're if it's normally like a really close knit group and everyone heavily drinks every time you get together, and all of a sudden you're not heavily drinking, that that might be one thing. But in general, people don't notice. People don't care. Honestly, my um, experience when I quit drinking, I wanted because I was kind of on this like biohacking, like wellness, like. I'm kind of excited about this. I've made this decision. It's not coherent with my work, what I'm doing. I want to talk about this. I'm dedicated to this. Like, I'm done. And my drinking friends didn't ask. And some of it was they didn't want to talk about and bring attention to their drinking, so it just became a new point. Yeah, I mean, I can't totally speak into this, but I can tell you, um, you know, those I can who are if you are, if it would be noticed, right, that you're not drinking and somebody's going to bring that up, more likely than not, they're feeling uncomfortable because it's almost like a, you know, shaming them. You're bringing guilt upon them, right? So how do you handle that where your choice is going to immediately make somebody, if you're just in a group of two or three and you're regularly doing this together, um, it may bring a lot of shame up and it may cause folks to you know, to question, like, you're being judgmental just by your choice. I think reiterating that, no, that's not actually, and again, like, you're, one of the things you said at the beginning, and one of the things I said, too, is that alcohol is not a bad thing, necessarily, right? And this is, um, this is a personal choice that you're trying to live a more excellent way in your own life, and that's not a, a statement upon anybody else, but what you feel like you're trying to do to experience um, a, a greater life for you. And that may actually, just by doing that, it may give other people courage as well. And that's exactly it too. I, you know, people give up alcohol when they train for marathons and, and you know, go into an intense grab program or a, you know, whatever, spiritual practice, and people respect that. People respect health initiatives and challenges. And um, not everything has to be attached, again, with the dark, heavy story. It can just be like, I'm just doing this, this health challenge. I'm feeling really good. I don't want to break my streak. Um, and I want to stick with it. And there can be a large truth to that. There might also be, you're doing a little experimentation on your own, but you don't need to go into that. It can just be yeah. as simple as that. And people respect it. And a lot of people will say, oh, I've kind of been thinking of doing the same. Like, tell me more. Yeah, yeah. It's good. What's next? Um, this one's not necessarily about alcohol, but still was. Any questions, fair. What's your physiological and theological opinion of weed in states where it's legal? Is it better for you? Is a little okay like alcohol? Yeah, figured we'd get this one. So <laughs> I'll let you speak into the physiology. I'm going to steer into the theology. Yeah. I like what I go back to, uh, particularly on this question, the 1 Corinthians 6, 12, that verse. Not all things are law. So in places where marijuana is legal now, right? How do you handle that as a Christian? Well, um, just because it's legal, it may not mean it's helpful. And just because it is uh, legal and it may be helpful, it may not. It may be something that becomes enslaving to you. Those are factors you have to weigh. And I would encourage you because just because Christian liberty is an individual thing, it's not an individualistic thing. Invite other people into discerning that with you if this is helpful. Um, and I would say, when it comes to, um, I just forgot what I was going to say, actually. So you talk into the physiology, and I'll maybe remember what I was going to say. Well, what I want to say to that is about the maladaptive and adaptive, which is the, the neuroscience. And so we can do this with anything, like with the phone, with marijuana, with sugar, with alcohol. 
is it to say across the board it's one extreme or the other? It, the question is more: is it adaptive or maladaptive? So, like an example with with my phone, um, it would it's maladaptive to me to sit for an hour and scroll Instagram and not look up. It's adaptive to me to use my phone and put in Google Maps of how to go to some place in West Ashland. So that's what I would say about like the you know the marijuana question, alcohol, whatever is. Are you using it as a maladaptive way? And and more um, more importantly is what happens when you don't use it? And that goes with alcohol too. We always want to ask the question of like you know the quizzes of like am I an alcoholic? You know, did, you know how much do you drink a week? And my question is always how long have you gone without it? And what happens when you are without it? So that's with the, with the marijuana. That adaptive, maladaptive piece. That's a great way to know if something, like the, with the million dollar question, how do you know if you're actually being enslaved by something? Well, can you go 30 days and it not be a problem? You know, that's a good question, not only for marijuana, but alcohol too. Like, if, if it's a real struggle for you to do that, um, and if you've never tried it, try it. I remember what, what I was going to say was, um, the, we often talk about like, okay, the motivation behind doing something is sometimes just as important, right, as the actual act itself. Uh, if you, and usually this is where, if you're altering your state of mind, if you're, it, it can very easily be escaping reality, right? Trying to escape something. And I, I would say, I mean, just from my own heart, like using alcohol, um, I've never used marijuana, but like it would be very much, I would imagine, if I'd really checked my own heart, seeking an escape from something in the world. And that actually, all of a sudden, you ask that question and the scriptures, and the physiology, uh, counseling, speak a whole lot into like, actually, it's good to be present here and now in, in real life without seeking escape from things. Yeah. So I would go also to that, like, I generally would say steer clear of altering your state of mind and your body. Anything else you would want to add to that? That was really good. Yeah. Well, I think there was one more thing to the question. I think they were trying to ask, yeah, is one it. or the other better for you? Like, like they're trying to say like, is one or the other what? Like, which maybe like which one is worse? Alcohol or marijuana? I, I think so. Okay. So so marijuana has um, a completely different effect on the brain. It's alcohol is out of the system in about seventy-two hours. Marijuana is in the system for thirty days. So I don't I can't kind of explain that whole um, you know neurochemical interaction it's, it's a different interaction for me it's you know it's altering brain chemistry it's altering biochemistry uh, it, and it, no I can't say you know one is better or worse or yeah what's the measurement right okay so in some places it's illegal to do that so yeah don't do the illegal one that would be worse um, or if you're looking at like um, the state of is it affecting your mind? Well, alcohol may not, if you're having one drink a month, like it may not affect your mind nearly like uh, marijuana would. And again, so a lot, getting to the motivation, so it just depends on what's the measurement and the metric that you're looking to weigh which is worse. And I will say this, um, I come from Colorado. We were the first state to legalize marijuana. Marijuana today is very different than it was 20 years ago. It's um, the strength and how they make it is very different. And I, I, there are certainly studies, there are, um, you can talk to people. What, I think there used to be that, and it, potentially 20 years ago, it was made of them, that it's, it's like, oh, it's not addictive, it's benign. 
you know, I, I again, personal accounts and, and studies, uh, people can really struggle addictively um, stepping away from marijuana. So that yeah. is what, yeah. Yeah, it's good. All right, next one. How does drinking affect fertility? Um, it certainly can't help. <laughs> So it's, it's very disruptive to all hormones. Uh, cortisol, insulin are hormones which play right into estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. Um, so you start dysregulating hormones, dysregulating blood sugar, which disrupts sleep. Um, all of that can certainly have huge, you disrupt the gut microbiome, the gut and the brain are connected. Um, all of that can certainly play into hormone regulation and fertility. That's good. I don't have anything to add to that. And and for older women who might be listening, perimenopause and menopause uh, is a disaster, <laughs> absolute disaster. Okay, now you have to say more on that. Now I'm curious. Why? How? Like how so? <laughs> Since we're going there, all right. <laughs> well, so perimenopause and menopause. Um, hormone, neurotransmitters and hormones are, are, have a very synergistic relationship. So serotonin and estrogen are connected, GABA and progesterone are connected, dopamine and cortisol are connected. When women go through uh, menopause, all those hormones start to dip. The first one that, that really goes is progesterone. Connected with progesterone is GABA. So women 35 to 55, what they're saying is they're anxious, they're doing it all and they can't sleep. Progesterone's low, but GABA's low, so then they're reaching to the wine because it gives that initial kind of false positive boosting the GABA. But then they lower it even more, then it just becomes this vicious cycle of even lower hormones, they feel worse. The hot flashes, the weight gain, now they're really not sleeping. So alcohol's very, very disruptive as um, you know, women are, as their hormones are going down and perimenopause and menopause. It makes all the symptoms worse. How about that? I'm glad I asked the question. I don't know if anybody else is, but I was fascinated by that. Uh, let me say this. I'm 52. Um, I'm very glad. I quit drinking when I was 43. I'm very glad that I did not drink through my perimenopause years. I'll just say that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Lizzie? What would you describe as drunk, feelings, symptoms, etc.? Yeah. That's a good question. You want to tackle the physiological side? Uh, how, how do we know when we're drunk? Yeah, how do we know when we're drunk? Um, probably sooner than you think is yeah. what I would uh, <laughs> start with, I think, on that one. Uh, if, you, if, if somebody's telling you you've been drunk probably for a while. Um, <laughs> drunkenness. So uh, again, I think that it, I think drunkenness is both an event, right, but also kind of a lifestyle. When you look at the drunkard and drunkenness, right, like so it, it's both of those, an event and a lifestyle. If we're talking about just an event, all of a sudden, not, I wouldn't say necessarily slurred speech, right? It can be where all of a sudden, um, and it, all this, I know, gosh, I wish I remembered like my biology class, but like your weight and how much you've had and the content and all that, um, it, it's probably, and it's hard to say, it's gonna differ across, you know, just kind of your own biological constitution. But I would say it's probably much earlier than like slurred speech. When you're all of a sudden your mind is being significantly altered, right? And we, I don't know if we said this already, but just a little bit, all of a sudden you realize you're willing to do things because it is a, 
inhibitor, right? Is that what? Okay. So it, so alcohol that. shuts down the prefrontal cortex. That's what I was looking for. The, yeah. The logical, analytical, um, lose in, you know, yeah. inhibitions, that's and right. so that's the first thing to, to go. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't take much to, to do that, and all of a sudden decision making compounds, right? And so I would say um, again, you're asking for a very rigid thing. But it's probably earlier than you think. And I would say it's certainly with slurred speech. Um, I, I would say a, a good test is what's the blood out. I, gosh, I should have looked all this. Like when you're getting into a car and they do the breathalyzer, what is it? Yeah, there you go. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. That's probably a good metric. If you're beyond that, like you're unsafe to drive. If you're unsafe to drive, that's probably not a, a good state. <laughs> <coughs> Anything? Okay. okay. Next. Um. Oops. I lost it. Oh, yeah. As alcohol, if alcoholism is a disease, how can the Bible aid those suffering and finding a resolution? Yeah, that's. We didn't really talk about the disease side of things, but maybe we did. But um, you you mentioned the nourish uh, acronym. You can go into that again, I guess. But um, repeat the question because. You were saying, if alcohol is a disease, how can you find treatment? No, how can the Bible aid those suffering and oh. finding a resolution? Yeah, the Bible, okay. <laughs> that part. I was like, that's you, Jolene. And actually, no, you, it's you. Um, all right, so I would say what the Bible teaches, again, is very similar to what uh, science and physiology teaches, which is uh, self-awareness, right, is really important, and recognizing kind of where you are, right, and being able to confess that is the first step. For some people, it takes rock bottom to do that. For you, you didn't, your story didn't have anything quite like that, but you had a level of self-consciousness and awareness that started a new trajectory for you. I think inviting others into community, again, this is a common theme, other people, true human connection, knowing what's really going on in your life, having vulnerability with others so that they know that. That's what's going to lead to healing. People have to know what's going on and sharing that. That's like 90% of the battle, too. Having people who are going to help along the way uh, when you're tempted, when you're struggling, that you can call on, that they can help coach you through it. That is so much of it. Um, and then the last thing I'll say just briefly is whenever, you're, whenever the Bible tells us to leave something, it's always got something better in store. So if you're fighting a temptation in your life, don't just focus on what you're giving up. You have to put something greater in its place. Have a very, and the more tangible, the more real that is to you, the greater the change is going to be. So the more palpable what the life is you want to live, and the more real that is to you, the chances of reaching it um, are going to be significantly better. You throw in community, and, and that's just going to make it all the better. So I would say um, the disease model is a, a bit outdated. There, there's debate on that. And so some of the newer neuroscience is um, about community, about relationships, about environments, that our nervous system is shaped by uh, our environment. And so the environment can be you know, relationships with parents, with friends, um, with church. And if there's uh, something that's been severed or disrupted or trauma, um, that disrupts the nervous system. So it, it's more about working with the environment, working with community, working with relationships, and you know, one of those relationships is the spiritual relationship. I, I drank the most at the end of my drinking, kind of 38 to 43, 
when I was the most spiritually um, disconnected and had no anchor spiritually. I didn't kind of connect that even a couple of years after drinking, but as time went on, it was like I, had, I, had, I wasn't doing anything spiritually, and that was when I was uh, drinking the most. So the neuroscience would argue that it's looking at the environment. I had no spiritual environment. It's looking at those relationships and what my nervous system is regulating or dysregulating with, and then I'm using alcohol to try to regulate. And it's not as the people argue that it's the, the disease model is a bit outdated. That's helpful. Okay, great. Well, y'all, I didn't realize we, we went three minutes over, so I really apologize. Um, <laughs> I looked down and I was like, holy, I thought we had like 10 more minutes, but that was a lot of fun. Jolene, thank you so much for coming. We're going to be around. Yeah, We're going to be around for a while. If you have questions, if we didn't get to yours, come and talk to us. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Brian McGreevy will be coming back. I'm really excited. We may even talk about the Barbie movie. Like, he went away right before. I know. that. Yeah, going where angels fear to tread, right? So, um, but we're so glad you came out. We'll hope to see you in two weeks.